Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Amy Lundy and Joel Drucker. Rafael Nadal's incredible start to the season. The run, the undefeated run, is over in the Indian Wells final. He went 20-0, now 20-1, losing to Taylor Fritz. Congratulations to Taylor First Masters 1000 victory. He does it at home. Gets his first win over the big three, by the way. He was 0-8 coming into the match and uh, put in a great performance. I think, unfortunately, though, we have to start with the health storylines because before the match, uh, Fritz had an ankle issue at the very end of his semifinal against Rublev. Then in his warm-up session, had to cut it off early, looked in tremendous pain. I think everybody was wondering if he was going to take the court. He does take the court. The match begins. And from there, Amy, what did you see in terms of where each player was at from a health standpoint? Taylor was moving well. Was he moving, you know, 10 out of 10 scale that I've seen him, you know, which is really good for a big guy. Um, no, he wasn't, but it was more like a six or a seven out of 10 for a movement. And the forehand had pop Gill. It was, you know, it had that, that Taylor Fritz quality, that whip, the, the pace. So immediately he broke. And I knew that this was going to be a problem because Rafa was in pain. I mean, they, they both actually looked really pale and ashy throughout the entire match, like pain. But I think it was the peck that Rafa injured late in the match with Alcaraz. And plus the foot thing. And not, not to make excuses, it just, it, it was rough um, in, in places. And, and I give the two guys a ton of credit for getting out there. Neither one of them defaulted or or had to retire or anything like that uh, major major props because it was a full stadium a lot of eyes on this match and there were some great moments i uh i felt fritz was pretty close to normal from to my eyes i, I agree with you that there might have been maybe a couple percentage points missing but uh, i f i was surprised because i thought the issue was going to be with fritz and then Yes, Nadal had the peck where his serve speeds were way down. And I think they were down throughout the match, but especially extreme at the start of the match. And then he started moving below his standard towards the end of the first set. And then it's, wait, that's not a pectoral. So I think, and we'll see what comes out. My gut is that not only was there an issue with the upper body on the serve, but there was an issue with the foot as well, because you don't, you don't move poorly because of your pectoral. But then in the second set, Nadal leaves the court and gets whatever treatment he got. I think the end of the second set from four five forward 
was really good stuff where we got a show and, and both kind of going at it. Nadal moving well again. Maybe the serve never got there, but the movement was there. And it was a, a great end to the match. Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, I'm right here. And so I was seeing it. I was right by the court and it was uh, really dramatic. And there was some wind. And as Amy pointed out, Fritz got off to a really good start. And uh, Rafa looked a little, that was surprising. Yeah, there was all word, like I had heard from numerous people that Fritz barely hit a ball when he practiced and, and who knows if he's going to be able to play. And then he comes out just swinging freely and hitting great shots and he's up 4-0 and, uh, and takes that first set. It was really, uh, it was impressive play from Taylor Fritz. I mean, I've watched him play since he was uh, in single digits in age and it was a, it was a great effort. I, I did think though, I had this, particularly after Nadal fought off one match point in the, um, in the second set at four or five, I thought he was going to take that tie break, but he, uh, he missed a big swing, a swing volley late in that second set tie break. And that really turned things around. Yeah, there, uh, that was a, a surprising miss. It got a lot of, it got very tight. Nadal also was very clutch, um, at four or five down match point. He had a nice serve. Uh, plus one forehand to force an error, hit a service winner at deuce, and then a forehand down the line winner to close that four or five game and extend the match. So it could have been could have been over even earlier. The theme for Nadal, though, throughout the week was winning with less than his best. We talked after the quarter match and we thought, okay, tough first round. At some point in the tournament, it became a pattern that things were not going to be easy for Rafa throughout the week, but he was still able to make the final, I guess a two part question. Why was it different today? And how does Rafa win so many matches without his best? How did he extend this all the way to the final in the Californian desert? He's the ultimate problem solver. He's he Houdini'd pretty much every match of this tournament and whether it was going for more on certain shots adjusting his return position which we have said previously that he would never do and he was playing around with that he was moving in on people's second serves um, taking the ball on the rise at times, but at other times not moving back and taking a full swing. He was moving into the net, volleying, hitting lobs, retrievals, drop volleys, like every shot in the book. And his greatness was really on display this entire tournament. It's really one of the best tournaments I've ever seen him play in terms of having to problem solve. So it's somewhat a shame that he lost in the final, but Fritz definitely earned it. I remember when I saw him play when he was 17 and he lost a match at the US Open. I think it was Jonas Elenawi or something. I don't quite know, but I remember one of the Spanish reporters who I talked to had seen him for years says, he's Nadal. I mean, in other words, how did he, how did he get to the finals here playing less than subpar tennis, less than great tennis he's Nadal like Amy said he's the ultimate problem solver and he's also the ultimate competitor I mean he just finds these ways and he wills himself and I think also um, a big thing are those work habits we all have known how Nadal in practice actually it's harder 
And that's his way of pushing himself and pushing himself and really demanding things of himself. And so uh, it reminds me of the thing Jimmy Connors said to me once, if you play every match like it's the big match, when the big match comes, you're ready. And Nadal treats every match like it's the big match. And we saw how that was true for Alcaraz, who, who also revealed that too. That's one of the things that's so exciting about Alcaraz is that he, um, he's bringing that to the tennis. And those guys know more about tennis than Nick Kyrgios will ever know about what it really means to put yourself into the heat of battle and practice and build those habits and not just kind of find these escape outs. I like that, uh, Joel. You're you're coming in hot, and uh, let's let's go with that. I mean, what did you, what did you see in the Curios match? And I know you covered it, and 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 a, wrote a good piece um on, up on tennis.com about the match. I mean, there can't ever be a a stronger contrast in personalities on the court and the way two players go about their business. But the question I would ask to you, Joel, is how does that translate into wins and losses in a, in a concrete way? Everybody can see that they're, they're acting different, but how do you think that plays out when they go head to head on the scoreboard? Well, winning is a desired outcome. That's what we all seek. Can't always control that. Competing is a process that we can control every minute of. And where Kyrgios has this blind spot is that while he plays well and he knows how to win, he does understand the work habits of competition, something as simple as being down 5-0 in a tiebreak and thinking rationally that he's going to lose. So he hits a forehand 20 feet long. And then he gets a, a, a use profanity with some of the audience. He loses a point and loses the set. So now what he's doing, he's kind of concocting the story that's going to allow him to think, yeah, see, and this happened and that happened, instead of just facing the reality. Alcaraz would never do that. Alcaraz would know, I'm down 5-0, I play the next point. I'm down 6-0, I play the next point. And of course, that's what Nadal does. And I think it's this sustained work habits that make us, I mean, it's a little bit like they say, uh, it, what matters most is when people aren't paying attention. I think Kyrgios, yeah, he can compete with the very best players. He showed it the other day with Nadal in this, in this quarterfinal match. But what about the sustainability and doing it again and again and, and putting yourself in that situation? I just think that's why I had so much respect for Alcaraz. That was that was one of the best matches I've ever seen at this tournament, the Alcaraz Nadal match last night at the in the semis. Just fantastic. So I think maybe that match also took a lot out of Rafa. I mean, it took out no a question. lot out of me watching it. No question. Um, that yeah. that wind um, and and Joel, I quoted you on Twitter last uh, night as saying that it's not that Rafa likes to play in the wind, but you don't. But Amy, I like playing. It's not, it's not, I like playing in the wind. You know, it, it, you're right. It's kind of an extension thing. I say, I like playing in the wind. And to me, the reason why Rafa and he talked about this press conference, look, we all know it's not going to be pretty, but it's called tennis. And those are the terms. And you just, it's attitudinal. See, I think yeah. the key playing well in the I, wind, your attitude. And the guys had, both the guys had as good attitudes as could be expected, but that wasn't just wind. That that was fifty mile an hour gusts. Oh, it, wait, and, wasn't, and it wasn't fifty. Was that? They were they were talking. I mean, they, there there was talk of of safety and and that kind of thing. So the fact that that they stayed out there and that they were able to handle it, you know, even though they were falling on their butts, um, it, it just made for an incredible match. And then the cherry on the top was that the wind came down to a manageable level and they were able to play really good tennis in that third set. 
But it was windier here in the 09 final when Nadal handily beat Andy Murray. I mean, and it was, and yeah, Nadal talks about, well, do we have a rule that says it can, when we stop for the wind? It was really, it was the sand. It was the sand in his eyes that was really disturbing Rafa. But the wind, the, the wind, I mean, I can only imagine Kyrgios if it had been windy yesterday. He would have found some way to just let it know that, oh, I'm not going to, this isn't going to be my day. This- 100%, 100%. It's so much about, acceptance and attitude and kind of putting even putting the ego aside and going for safer and easier shots and both of them were were incredible amazing accomplishment by Alcaraz to win that second set I mean that was great tennis and he played great shots and he was focused and he was dialed in and he was he was competing and so I think the difference is the person who's willing to just keep competing and keep putting an effort it doesn't matter what the what the level is and uh and, and that's what Kyrgios doesn't quite always see. It's like, oh, just compete. And it's going to be fun. What will be, will be. So we got three examples here. We got 5-2 down against Korda. And Nadal bears down and plays his game and makes his opponent earn everything and comes back. Then we have the wind. Another scenario where you have to be mentally strong and stable and try to accept certain things that are going to be inconvenient and difficult. And then today in the final, you had the injuries that he was dealing with. And again, right. He competed extremely admirably like a champion, but I think at the end of the second set, the difference was even when Nadal, even when Nadal bared down and deed up and I thought he was moving well, and I thought he made a lot of balls. He just didn't have everything firing. Fritz actually took it. Fritz under pressure was able to deliver and play some great points down the stretch to take that second set. Uh, I think a lot of credit goes to him just for uh, for managing that. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever when conditions change without notice quick strategic thinking is crucial and with obstacles consistently impending determination is essential in overcoming them it's this willingness decisiveness and resilience that sets marines apart with our fighting spirit we don't just fight battles we win them marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown and through adaptable problem solving we do just that learn more at marines.com Absolutely. And serving well and, and, and uh, hanging with his both ground strokes and withstanding some attacks from Nadal. How about the volume? I'm happy for Taylor. Um, He definitely earned this and um, he's been on the up for a while now. You know, I think he's snuck up on some people um, and he played so well at Indian Wells in the fall. So um, the question now, Gil, is what does he do with this? Can he really contend for a slam now? And is this going to give him confidence? Is this going to help him understand the patterns that he needs to play? He's now banked a win over a member of the big three. 
you know, he took Novak to, to five back in Australia. I know Novak was injured as well in that match, but still um, to take a member of the big three in a grand slam to five sets is, is a pretty good accomplishment. So he's been on the up. Um, he can believe, but um, for Rafa, you know, I, I just want him to rest and, and get well so that he can really contend and put out a good clay season. Well, this is exactly the kind of reason why a guy like Nadal doesn't play Miami. It's funny, a week ago when he was down two service breaks to Corda, the same day he announced he wasn't going to Miami, Miami think, wait, wait, Rafa, don't, don't leave North America. And now, now you see what's going on. He squeezed what he could out of his North American hardcore. He played here, finals, no thank you, Miami. Little rest. Then back to Monte Carlo. I, I was really, I just have to shout out to the Opelka match too. I was so right. impressed with the, the way Rafa was handling the 145 mile an hour plus serves. And, you know, he was actually returning some of those and getting, I mean, it wasn't just like aces. Um, it, it underscores what a great returner Rafa really is. Um the forehand for the vast majority until this final match, the for, Rafa's forehand for the vast majority of this tournament was looking good. Even though I know you said Gilly wasn't playing his best tennis and all that. Um, it, it was the Rafa forehand for the vast majority of the tournament. And um, hopefully, you know, the, the pectoral and all that will heal up and, and he'll be able to get that depth on the forehand. I think the, there were some some issues with controlling these tennis balls. Are there any other and their pen balls and Nadal has discussed he he much prefers Wilson balls and Dunlop balls, which are at the vast majority of events use Wilson or Dunlop. And I think these pen balls are a little strange for for certain players. It's the same for everyone. But, you know, people are also allowed to have preferences. Um, are there any other theories for why? it was more of a struggle this week for Rafa than last week, uh, or I guess now two weeks ago in Acapulco, where we, we all agreed it was just breathtaking level from start to finish, you know, unbeatable stuff. We came into this event not anticipating that it was going to be such a struggle for Rafa. Really, Gil? I mean, did you right? pick Rafa to win the tournament? I did. Yes, I did. Okay, okay. Um, I, well, I, I said, and I picked I him, I picked him to not lose the set in the semis and the final. I said <laughs> it was the most confident I've been picking Nadal on a hard court tournament in a very long time. Here's, <laughs> here's my big theory. This will bowl everybody over fatigue. I mean, yeah. the guy has, is off to a gangbuster start. Who starts the season this way? What professional tennis player starts a season with a winning streak like this and winning all these tournaments, including a grand slam? Novak did in 2011. Okay, great. One of the other goats. Yeah. I mean, wait, wait, wait. That someone put a good uh, reply to one of my tweets that I agree with. 41 and 0. This run by Nadal helps put that run in perspective. Yeah. Novak that's true. doubled this. But that's I true. I agree with Amy about the fatigue. I think Rafa played well in Acapulco. And I'm not as aware of the conditions of Acapulco, whether it's, well, the altitude or the speed of the court. This tournament has a lot of unique things to it. You've got the thin air, the 
ultra slow hard court, which is different than an ultra slow clay court. And you got that, and then then this wind came in, and I think the whole I think the thing about fatigue is a big factor. Is also Gil yesterday. He, he's thirty five years old. Don't forget. He talks I about mean, yesterday. He talks about being away from home. He talks about being away in us from while in Australia for four and a half weeks, and then back home. And now he's been away for these weeks. And he wants to get home. So I think, yeah, I think by by the time he's with Kyrgios, you know, these opponents, by the time he's dealing with Kyrgios on Thursday, it, he's feeling it. Okay, we've hit on a lot of themes of the week: playing with wind, winning without your best. What about the volleys against Carlos Alcaraz in the third set? A lot of the most important points in that match were played with Nadal at net, making not just ordinary volleys, but highly difficult volleys. I mean, was this not one of the best performances at net of Nadal's career? Even in the match against Fritz, he came up with late in the match he came up with some amazing volleys the 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 strong volley followed by the touch volley um and then he goes and and makes a couple of errors from the baseline so it, it's that old adage of um you you win a much higher percentage of the points at net than you do the baseline but um it's it's really the curious case of Benjamin Button reflex volleys because my son put on a science video National Geographic the other day and it the whole point of the video was that as we get older our reflexes diminish it's science it's nature you cannot fight it you can you know try to mitigate it some but your your reflexes are going to diminish and to see some of the the reflex volleys and and he's not just getting a racket on those things he's putting them in a strategic place on the court it the what he did against alcaraz is was just phenomenal when does the diminishment occur when you're about 37 in rafa's case i mean it's <laughs> it's fascinating he uh, i i was writing about this yesterday the history of nadal's volleys is usually a monster approach shot followed by a, a, a volley inside the service line but not against Alcaraz, it was different. You're right, Gil. He had a few more stick volleys and he, he got way on top of the net. He, he managed, there's a whole little mini course he put on about court and space management when you come to the net on a windy day. It's like, okay, here I am. No, your lob isn't gonna really work. The wind, lob, wind, kind of tricky. Here I am, he gets right up, gets way close to the net and fielded some volleys with some great reflexes. and. And yeah, it was some of the best volleying I ever saw from Nadal and also kind of up in the ante because look how good Alcaraz's volleys already are. I dare say Alcaraz is a better volleyer at 18 than Nadal was. I think that's right. Yeah, we'll see. I, I was really impressed with Alcaraz's serve and volley. That is not okay. an easy skill. And, and to put to make that first volley when you don't know what you're going to get sometimes it's right at your feet sometimes it's high you know sometimes you're running for something out wide um and to be able to place it deep you know a good solid quality volley deep i tweeted that um i thought alcaraz was a better servant volleyer than cressy who who serves and volleys every point pretty much and uh, people got mad at me and they wanted stats and all that. And, and I am going to run the stats. I have a sneaking suspicion that 
the success percentage on those two players serve and volley is going to be very, very similar, probably almost identical, even though Alcaraz uses it more of a as more of a change up strategy. Right. So the comparison is a little is a little tricky because you had one guy doing it as the core competency. That's his it's his it's his go to all the time. And the other guy's mixing it. But I suspect you're right. I suspect that that's kind of how those numbers shake on the on the net rushing. I mean, when you come to net, you're going to probably have a a good 65% plus. It's just how you, how often you you get there. So and how often you do it. So it'll be interesting to see how Alcaraz continues to integrate some of that into his game. It's 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 fun to watch. Boy, Ooh, it's great. Yeah, I think we should address head on at this point. Carlos Alcaraz is going to be a problem for everyone very very <laughs> yes. soon. Yes. <laughs> so he already is. I think you already. I think you're absolutely right. I can't yeah. wait to see him in this clay season. Me too. I want to see so, him these draws, all that stuff. I'm sure there's going to be more discussion about him soon, but for now, I mean, just watching that match, what were the things that developmentally uh, you saw as things where Nadal was way ahead of Alcaraz advantages for me, it was spot serving, you know, Carlos doesn't really spot serve at this point. He just kind of puts it in at high speeds. Um, and I think the other thing is just knowing when to make sure not to miss um, just the consistency um, from, from Alcaraz can sometimes be lacking. He's more of an offensive minded player where we know what Nadal was like at Carlos's age. It was never, ever miss. Don't give opponent anything run for days. And Carlos needs to, is going to develop the opposite direction. Well, I think it's rather not just the, it's not almost so much the opposite as much as the incremental C it's, it's not that he needs to be, even though he has the, the demeanor and some of the temperament, he's got the Spanish background as Nadal too. It's more about addressing the Nadal problem. Nadal has posed the problem to the world. How, this is who I am. Try to beat this. So Alcaraz has built a game that's is built in the course of building a game that tries to problem solve that. So he's not going to just be a Nadal 2.0 as much as he's going to be an Alcaraz 1.0 and, and address that in the offense. It's hard to evaluate his shortcomings juxtaposed against Nadal. That's that's a trick. That's only one part of his whole deal. I mean, I think I want to see him. I want a broader data sample. I want to see him play Musetti. I want to see him play um, a Schwartzman. You know, I want to see against other kinds of players and see how he goes about, you know, problem solving them and and beating those kind of guys on his way. And Rafa is a you know Rafa is a whole whole problem unto himself. I thought that Alcaraz made more errors from the baseline than Rafa did. So that goes to what you said, Gil. Um, Rafa seemed to have a higher shot tolerance from the baseline. And I think it was because Alcaraz was unsure of when to use offense, when to use defense, and when to use neutral on certain Nadal balls. And uh, just, you know, 10 minutes into the match, I thought Rafa can get errors off of him. And that's what happened. Yeah, that's I would I would I, I like that. And I think it's also that I want to say that whole thing about figuring out what to do. It's, yeah, join the club, Carlos. I mean, yeah. join the other thousand people who all the other thousand people in the thousand matches in Dallas won. I mean, it's just figure that with the Dow because sometimes the ball is short, but it's high and there is running and and the lefty thing, all these factors, all this, all these traffic patterns that Nadal creates like no one else in the sport. 
I agree with the offense defense issue, but I also think we can say that usually he's opting for the offense option when sometimes maybe he needs to go more readily to the other options. Perhaps so. So that's where he's going to have to learn to calibrate that. Or, or when you play someone like Nadal, you think, you know what? No, the defense option is just going to, yeah, I'm going to stay in this point, but here's my, here's my window. Got it. I mean, that's, you got to take it. You got to take it. But at right. the same time, you're the fastest guy on tour. Right. There's no reason to force the issue when you don't have to and make the errors that sometimes he's still making. But a lot of players go through this development. Team did and Medvedev did. So many players get more patient as their career progresses. Yeah, well, I think at this point, Alcaraz is kind of a first strike guy. That's how he's sort of approaching his game. And he has the ability. We know he has the ability to outrun people and to play defense because of his speed. Um, so he'll, it'll just be like identifying, well, this is where I, I play defense or this is where I turn defense into offense or this is where, you know, I put the ball way, way up so I can get myself back into position. He'll, he'll get his computer program and, and he'll learn to do that as he develops. Yeah. But it's going to be, it's going to be a transcendent new, new level of the whole offense defense alchemy. It's going to be something different. And so in a way, maybe we looked out, out okay, let's, let's forget Spain. Let's forget Rafa. Let's think about Andre Agassi. Let's think about the young Andre Agassi and let's think about Alcaraz. You're right, looking to be offensive and creative and he wants things to, um, to do well. He wants to be uh, you know, an offensive player, kind of. Maybe in some ways even like Roger Federer. And that's the player, Roger Federer, who Carlos has compared himself to while kind of everyone else has looked to compare him to Nadal and I've even seen Djokovic, but Alcaraz's guy is Federer. It's going to turn out that Carlos Alcaraz is going to be compared to no one other than Carlos Alcaraz. Uh, but speaking of uh, Roger Federer, we have footage of Federer hitting fuzzy yellow balls. Uh, Amy, <laughs> what did you, uh, what did you see? Because you're, you're our go-to for this with Federer's uh, comeback videos uh, do you have any analysis of, of Federer hitting against the wall? Nobody liked it. It wasn't just me this time that saw something weird. <laughs> Nobody liked it. Um, in fact, I think Marty Fish, who is really good friends with Federer, so he could say this, said, Federer, bend your knees, <laughs> which is like <laughs> so mean because he just had knee surgery. Like, come on, Marty. But I guess he has license to do that. Um, and yeah, he wasn't bending that, that knee, wasn't loading it like the classic Roger load, but he's hitting up against a wall and, you know, it, it's, he's working it out. He's working it out. I don't know. Who knows? You know, you certainly can't tell anything based on that video, but if, if that's all he's done so far, he's got a long way to go. For sure. I was uh, taken aback at how far away the wall seemed. That was my takeaway. He hit the ball. He was hitting the ball really hard and it was took years for the ball to hit the wall. I mean, he, he must've had a lot of space over there <laughs> funny. and I don't think he was like it's funny because that famous Federer challenge he's like two inches away from the wall hitting those volleys right this yeah. was like the this was the opposite the wall was like on you know on another in Great another wall country. Of China 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe he's getting ready instead of taking balls early. Maybe he's getting ready for the 2023 French Open. Maybe that's the one that he's got circled. Yeah, maybe that's what he's planning it to come back. And he's gonna he's gonna go through the clay season in 2023. Yeah. All right. So second straight Miami coming up without a member of the big three, right? That's right. Last yep. time it delivered a Sinner versus Hercotch final. So uh, we'll see. <gasps> <laughs> I yawned, Joel, in case you can't see me. Yeah. I <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's see what this year brings. And uh, we will be with you in, in some capacity when it happens. That'll do it for this episode of three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. Uh, greatly appreciate it if you leave a rating and a review on Apple or Spotify. And if you're watching on YouTube, like, comment and subscribe. We'll see you next time on the next episode of three.